Hi, I'm Mara Webster with InCreative Company, and I'm so excited to be joined by the wonderful Stephen Merchant, who is the co-creator, executive producer, and also actor in the series, The Outlaws. And the first thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is, is the narrative structure of the second season, because obviously when you created the first season, a lot of it was this amazing ensemble of characters who under other circumstances wouldn't have spent that amount of time with each other. And so there was a, a natural place to build conflict from, but through the arc of the first season, a lot of it was about them finding their similarities, building these friendships, and there being a real trust between them in certain ways as well. And so structurally for season two, did you feel like you were building a lot of the conflict from more external spaces as you were writing a lot of the episodes? Well, like you say, the original idea was, could you bring a group of people together that um, perhaps wouldn't otherwise encounter each other? And like you say, can they learn from each other? Can they find common ground? It seemed like when Elgin, James and I were developing the show, we were living in very divided times. You know, it was the rise of Trump. It was Brexit in the UK. It was it felt so socially and politically people were very divided. And we like the idea of, as you say, a show that forces unlikely uh, people together and, and sort of literally they have to work together. And um, as you say, in, in the series two, they've begun to forge these friendships but I suppose to us it was always like a surrogate family in that they were they could be very honest and sort of brutally honest with each other in a way that they wouldn't be necessarily if it was a sort of friend group or even a, a work environment where you sort of debase certain rules of the working life here it's more like I, I imagine if you're in an Alcoholics Anonymous or something there's a sort of honesty that comes from the fact that you're all strangers going through this very unique experience and so even though, as you say, they have found common ground, it felt like they could still kind of snip at each other and snipe each other because they were still, they were sort of friendly, but they were truthful and honest in the way that I think families can be. You know, I can speak to my sister or my dad in a way I never would with other people because there's a sort of undercurrent of this assumed love and respect. And, and, you know, therefore you sort of, you don't need to be quite as civil sometimes. And so, um, so yeah, it felt like we were trying to create this, this surrogate family, but in order to dial up, the pressures and the tensions, as you say, bringing in these external threats that had been seeded in the first series, but which in series two could just take on a much more jeopardy, higher stakes. Someone, when I first started creative writing, said, you know, with a, a show, you should chase your characters up a tree and then you should throw rocks at them. And I thought in series one, we, we, we chased them up a tree and now we're throwing rocks at them and anything else we can find lying around. And so that was a sort of jumping off point for series two. And when you were writing the second season, you'd only filmed, you know, a very, very tiny amount of season one when everything shut down. Um, and so I was really interested in that opportunity to kind of revisit what you'd already been working on for season one as you were starting to write season two, because it sounds like you had that chance to really go back in and, and almost open up some of the narrative threads, you know, even a character like the Dean that was initially just going to be a voice on the phone, all of a sudden becoming a much larger part of the structure so that you could really build out that storyline in season two. And, and so what was that like in terms of starting to write the second season and at the same time retroactively going through some of the episodes for season one to do that? Whenever you pitch a show to a network, they always say, uh, what have you got planned for series two? And you always go, oh, we've got loads of ideas. And of course, you have no idea because you haven't thought that far ahead. And uh, so when we got shut down because of COVID, it gave us that opportunity, as you say, to think about series two and to plan ahead. And I said to Amazon, look, we're going to be locked down. Who knows how long? Let's write a series two. When we come back, we can do one and two seasons back to back. And, um, and that's what we did. And so it gave us an amazing opportunity to, to plan ahead, to seed things in series one that we could pay off later. We had an amazing actor like Clay Spang, who appeared to be just a... Um, 
a cameo in, in season one and yet we knew that in season two he was going to become the sort of big bad of the whole show and um and it just allowed us to really think you know my dream was that you'd get to the final episode of season two and you'd think how on earth did we get here the characters had evolved the story had got to some crazy place and that was what we were sort of able to do by be, by being able to plan ahead um one of the things i loved about breaking bad was that whenever they they wrote themselves into a corner. They gave the characters a problem. They never just magically, you know, it just never magically disappeared. You know, they always, they had that problem and it remained a problem. So if they had a dead body in the trunk of the car, they had a dead body. They, that wasn't just gone by the next season. And so um, that was one of the things we were really inspired by was like every time we given the characters a problem in season one, that was going to come back and haunt them in season two and sort of just, you know, they, they never got away scot-free. And, um, and that just became a really fun sort of part of the, the writing process. I mean, that's one of the things that I love as well in the way that you've, you've written this show and a lot of the circumstances is that the, the situations become very complex and the, the spaces that they find themselves in running an entire drug operation. And yet every single one of those circumstances feels completely believable for the characters to end up in and to execute. And so how do you set about making sure that you've got everything really detailed in the way that it needs to be? And it always feels very realistic to each individual character, because again, you're not just serving one central character character that is running this drug operation it's what's the involvement and execution of each of these seven main characters that you're serving throughout the entire story well as i mentioned the show was co-created by um, me and a guy called elgin james and elgin comes from a very different background to me and ended up when he was young sort of running with gangs and he ended up doing some jail time and yet we met um you know in in la in a in a, in a coffee shop and we hit it off immediately and we had so many kind of shared interests and sh so many uh, shared views on the world and very similar sense of humor and yet these completely different backgrounds and it occurred to both of us as we were talking that you know we never met each other but at this you know while I was having my kind of fairly cozy little middle class upbringing in England you know he was running with gangs and getting into fights and all kinds of other things were happening and those two lives were sort of coexisting and then they were completely opposite you know and I and we sort of thinking well what if I had I'd encountered him at that time. What if I had drifted into that world? You know, what if I had somehow had to be in a gang for some reason? What if someone was shooting a gun at me or or uh, I was forced to steal, you know, to, to pay my rent? And so the, so much of the humor to me came from what would someone like me from a kind of cozy middle class life? How would they react when they were sort of confronted with a world of crime? Because so much of the kind of crime stuff we see is about, you know, hardened criminals or about tough cops. But, you know, they're constantly reading stories in the paper. So like a guy, who, you know, he murdered his wife because she was having an affair with his best friend. And you're like, how, what? That was just a regular guy for four years of his life. He's just normal, just going to work. And then one day he killed his wife. And, and so, so much of that is going on. And, and that seemed interesting to me. It was sort of, it's ordinary people in an extraordinary situation. And how would they wind up there? And how easy it would be to drift into that a life of crime if the, the the cards were dealt a different way in your life and um and so that just is where the fun becomes then so it's about how do i think i would react or how would my dad react or thinking about you know or some of the other writers how would we react in that situation would we be scared would we be brave um you know and i think there's so much pleasure in that and hopefully it never becomes so absurd that it feels like it's a spoof or a pastiche because that was never the intention it was just how do would real people react in a in an unreal situation? One of the things I really enjoyed about this season as well is the fact that it feels like each of the characters get to have moments of kind of 
inner reflection and a little bit of, of self-discovery and a little bit of evolution in terms of their internalized journeys. You know, you have Gabby kind of understanding a lot of the mechanisms that she's created in her life to deal with the fact that she has a very vacuous relationship with her father and, and the trauma from her childhood. Or you have John kind of being very self-aware of his privilege and, and what that does to him in terms of emotional stability in the world. And yet they're all kind of structured to happen at different beats throughout the season. And, and again, because you've got this whole myriad of characters how did you set about narratively finding what's the right moment and what's the right action that's going to cause each of these characters to have those moments of, of introspection and self-reflection well yeah I think series one was about the character about us discovering that and, and understanding the characters and I think season two like you say was about the characters understanding the characters and growing in some way or getting some kind of self-awareness but again we liked the idea that um that it was through this very unique circumstance that they were getting to understand themselves, right? So that again, if they hadn't done community service and if they hadn't met these other people and got themselves in this knotty situation, perhaps that sort of enlightenment and self-discovery would never have occurred. To go back to the analogy of the sort of Alcoholics or Narcotics Anonymous, you know, again, that you show up to that thing and the strangers in that group allow you to speak freely and you begin to self-reflect and hopefully you move on. And this was a sort of, um, you know, a little version of that. Um, and so, it was very intricate in writing it because you we started with the thriller plot and so to work out all the kind of thriller beats and all the turns of that and the and the, the obstacles they were going to face and how they were going to resolve them and how that was going to lead to a new problem so we sort of began with that and then on top of that uh we discussed you know where we wanted the characters to go and how they wanted to evolve emotionally and then it was a question of sort of weaving that in to the thriller plot and using moments in the thriller to to tip the characters in different ways, you know, and 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 to 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 set them off on a new on a new path, and um, so it became a really intricate balancing act, and sort of because in a sense, once the thriller is underway, it's quite hard to just sit down and just spend time with the characters because you're like, but, but, but hang on, but what about that? And so it was sort of trying to find a way of the growth and the and the sort of human interaction um, and development sort of intersecting with the thriller, so both kind of fed into each other. So it was. Um, it was very kind of complicated, but but ultimately very satisfying when when people started to respond to that. Yeah, you know, one of the characters as well where you're able to do that very successfully is with the character of Ronnie, played by Rian Barreto, um, because she's no longer under the constriction of living with her parents. That was there a lot more freedom to kind of play around with her character in the spaces that you could take her because there isn't. That, you know that person to answer to when she walks in the door at the end of the day it's it's who is she without any of those constrictions in her life and finding a lot more of her own self and and a lot of her inner self-confidence in that regard well we'd already we'd begun in series one with her being someone who has been doing some shoplifting um as a kind of as a thrill or as a rebel as an act of rebellion which was born in part from one of our writers nikita who had a similar experience when she was very young she was a kind of maths whiz who um, you know, who sort of rebelled a bit about, uh, from the expectations that were put on her. And, but once you've sort of added that little bit of grit in the oyster, you know, you can kind of explore that, right? So like you say, once that person doesn't have the trappings of school or teachers or, um, or parents to sort of keep them on the straight and narrow, what happens to them when does that, that little something in them grow? Does it, does it magnify or are they able to keep a lid on it? And that seemed really fun with a character like that. Again, as I say, hopefully the version you see in season one, episode one, is very different from the one in in season six, episode in season two, in season two, episode six. That she's really gone on a long journey, and um, 
And uh, as she says in the in the first episode of this second season, you know, I, I now I don't know what to do with my life. I all the sort of the, the guardrails are off, man. You know, and as Diane says, you know, like Spider Man would say, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Like she she can kind of make herself into anything. And so when you're confronted with that, what do you do, and where do you go? And um, and so it seemed fun to kind of take a kind of a girl in her late teens, early twenties, and and give her that sort of existential crisis, whilst also trying to avoid the threat of a drug dealer. Yeah, and you were bringing up up Diane there, who's such a brilliant character, and kind of teeters into that space where there could have been a possibility that that, that could have been the character that that took elements of comedy over into the spoof area, you know. But even moments where she's kind of like you know, stop messing around, get back to your work and, and is always speaking in in different rhymes for that. Still always feels very natural to her character because you've developed her so fully that we understand where everything's coming from. And it's, you know, this is the one place in her life that she has control over other people and she's really kind of seeding that opportunity. Um, and so just from a language perspective, what's some of the fun in writing a character like that where she's one of the characters that you can push further into that comedic space, but then always finding that line of, of keeping it focused on character. Well, when Elgin and I first started, we um, we we gave her uh, a few. We, we imagined that she'd watched the movie Cool Hand Luke a lot, and in the film Cool Hand Luke, there's a kind of there's a kind of tough, you know, sort of prison guard who kind of with, with reflective shades who says things like, uh, "Hey, boss, can I get some water? I'll allow it." And we liked the idea that she had watched Cool Hand Luke on a loop, and that she was trying to kind of carry herself with the same kind of, you know, authority that this character in that movie did. And so, um, as you said, there's something very fun about a person that's given a little bit of authority, but has no status anywhere else in their life. And now they're sort of giddy with a little bit of control they have. And, you know, famously it happens with police officers or, or prison warders and, you know, and, and sometimes in just regular workplaces, right? If you get a bit of, sort of seniority, you can become a monster or of course celebrities being notorious for it. So the idea of this kind of very provincial, you know, community service supervisor, you know, swaggering around like she's running Alcatraz. Just, it was always, it was always kind of adorable to us. And, and yeah, and so once uh, brilliant Jess Gunning got that role, you know, we just, she she did an audition tape. I've never seen an audition tape where I had no notes. Like just, it was perfect right out of the box. And so then you just, you're just excited because you just want, want to keep giving this woman more and you just thought her own natural rhythms of speech, you want to write that into. And we, like you say, written a couple of, kind of these little sort of odd little poetic couplets that she, that you imagine she goes home and writes at night, you know, um, I can't remember what they are now, but, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, less talking, more walking or whatever it might be. And, um, and just once she, once she does a few of those, you know, Jess, and she's great doing them, then you just, you know, right, go write 10 more of those and we'll throw them in. Um, and that's, again, one of the pleasures of, of having two seasons and sort of, you know, starting to work with these actors, getting locked down, having already got a sense of sort of what they're capable of and where their strengths are. And then sort of in the downtime, being able to think, great, we'll write for the actors. Um, and so, yeah, that, that sort of lockdown, which at the time seemed a nightmare, ended up being a real kind of blessing in disguise. And with the fact that you're mentioning some, some of the influences, I wanted to talk about the visual style of the show because in the first season, you, you directed three of the episodes, but especially with the fact you were directing episode one and two, you were very much setting up and creating the visual language and, and what that was gonna be for the show. And, and I love the camera movement. You know, If we go back to um, the shoplifting scene right at the very beginning, there's really fast camera movement. You've got kind of these really beautiful cinematic wide shots of Bristol that really brings in a lot of the color and 
complexion of the city. And again, at the same time, there's also a, a huge amount of intimacy that the camera brings us into with each of the characters to really connect us to all of them, especially when you were setting that up and introducing us to all seven of them. And so how did you how did you set about looking at different influences like Westerns and, and thrillers, you know, your childhood watching a lot of Hitchcock, and then also just the intimacy of character and creating this visual language with the camera and, and a lot of the, the lenses and the setups that were going to become part of the language of the series that we still see. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I, 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 take, I take that as a great compliment because we, we worked very hard on the, on the sort of visual look of the show. And as you say, one of the jumping off points was the fact that Bristol itself as a backdrop is a very cinematic place. It's full of graffiti um, and other street art. There's a lot of buildings that are painted vibrant primary colors. Um, it's very hilly, so you get a lot of depth. I was jokingly compared to San Francisco in that regard. It has a giant suspension bridge, it's on the river. Um, and so we wanted to sort of let the city, which I grew up in, become a feature and become a character in the show. And so we wanted it to have quite a sort of colorful summertime look that felt quite sort of cinematic and quite, and as you say, somehow evoked the kind of heat and sweatiness that I associate with things like Westerns, because, um, you know, the fact that the show is called The Outlaws and, and I like to think of them as a sort of misfit Magnificent Seven, you know, and even the soundtrack has a kind of, you know, as a sort of Western-y Sergio Leone vibe. And I like that idea of taking very provincial British people and giving them a grand sort of cinematic treatment that they don't quite deserve. Um, because it feels to me that everyone in their life sort of feels like they're living the movie of their life, right? So everyone is sort of thinking of themselves in Technicolor on, in widescreen. And why would these people not be any different? Um, and so, so me and the DP Nick Martin were very carefully about trying to create that visual look and crazy amount of touchstones. So as you mentioned, that foot chase, uh, which we have a couple of foot chases in that first season, they were very inspired by things like um, Point Break, the Keanu Reeves movie, which has a great foot chase through the back alleys. Uh, whereas we have a home invasion in season in episode two that was kind of very inspired by like that sort of POV camera at the beginning of John Carpenter's Halloween as it sort of tracks into the house. So you could use those kind of genre tricks, the thriller genre or the um, action movie genre or the horror genre, but again, bring them back to this very domestic sort of um, suburban world and hopefully try and kind of meld them in so they didn't feel too transparent. They didn't, again, they weren't spoofy, they weren't pastiches, they were just cinema vocabulary that we could use. But one of the things I'm very aware of is I'm not a big fan when the, of, when, of when the camera draws attention to itself very self-consciously. I'm always reminded of Billy Wilder's quote. He would say, why would I put the camera behind a fireplace shooting into the room? No one could ever watch the events unfolding in a room from behind a fireplace. You know, and I always think about that, that sort of the camera to some degree should not draw too much attention to itself, or at least that the director shouldn't be constantly drawing attention to themselves, that I want you to invest in these characters. I want you to believe in this world. I don't want you to be constantly thinking about the kind of visual trickery. And so it's that balancing act of trying to make it stylish and make it feel cinematic. But, but as you say, having those more intimate moments that are just kind of quite traditional, tighter coverage that brings you into those characters, lets you share their emotions or, or their feelings. So it's, it's, a, it's a sort of balancing act um, that, 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 that I really enjoy. It was a really kind of enjoyable challenge because I've not sort of worked in a, in a genre world before. And the genre world, I think, just gives you so much, so many opportunities. You know, it just gives you so much freedom to explore all the kind of different things you've always wanted to do. 
And and in talking about the comedy in the series as well, it, it's something where there's a lot of moments where the comedy is very much things which are bubbling under the surface versus landing a, a specific punchline. Um, and a lot of that comes from the fact that you very realistically reflect life through having these dramatic moments and then taking a scene and, and thinking, you know, what are the levels of discomfort that we can kind of add in to enhance this and to kind of play with those two tonalities. And so if we take a moment like your character, Greg, trying to find Gabriella to fix their friendship at the same time as being followed by a policeman and walking through a club where people are engaging in sex acts and then there's glow in the dark lighting. When you're setting about creating scenes like that from the stages of writing and then, and then getting onto set and thinking about those visual aspects like the lighting, you know, because that adds a huge humoristic element how do you kind of start with the emotional heart and beat of a scene and then find what those elements are going to be which are really going to heighten the tension or heighten the emotion and the want and needs of the characters in their dialogue well again you know that scene by way of an example you know you could play that very straight right where a character's gets frantically got to find someone who might testify against him and you know get him in trouble with the police um but you're always looking for obstacles so that, that that's not too easy to do and it seems to me that, again, you know, I think about myself in that situation, right? I'm trying to get into a sex club. I don't know the password to get in because it's a very exclusive environment. Me personally, Stephen, I can't get into regular nightclubs half the time. They just, the, the doorman don't want me in there. So I kind of struggle to get in regular clubs, let alone a kind of, you know, a sort of speakeasy. So what are you going to do? Well, I guess I'd have to try and, I tall, I guess I'd try and shimmy up a drain pipe, get into an open window. Well, so then I have to try and do that. Well, then that's funny and awkward and difficult. And then I'm getting into a set club. So I'm, the chances are I'm going to fall into a room where some kind of sex act is happening because that seems completely believable that that could occur. And so you just, you know, again, you're hoping that the whole way through you're finding kind of funny moments and uh, that, that, that don't undermine the jeopardy, but sort of bring humor but again, that don't sort of break the reality so completely that people think, oh, that's, that would never happen. And I know from my own experience that so many kind of odd things have occurred to me in the ways that I've embarrassed myself, uh, you know, or I, I was once talking to a girl in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a house party when I was at university and I thought I was looking pretty good and I was wearing this kind of uh, smart shirt and I was talking to her and she said, Steve, you're on fire. And I went, thank you very much. And she went, no, you are on fire. And I caught my shirt alight on a tea candle and it was up in flames, a very cheap acrylic shirt. It went up in flames. So I'm not at my most attractive when I have to roll on the floor, you know, screaming, put it out. And, you know, again, if you put that in a, in a dating scene, people think, oh, come on, man, that's crazy. But things like that have occurred to me and I'm sure they've happened to other people. So to me, it's sort of that feels perfectly viable uh, in, a, in a thriller as well. It seems that doesn't seem irrational to me that something like that could occur. And you know, and so this sort of, you know, the emotional response of the character is as I would react in that situation. And, and uh, when he encounters, you know, Lady Gabby and she feels there's this friendship, which has kind of been corroded by this crime story, she reacts as she would do, which is very emotional and very angry. And, and so that suddenly brings you back to a new emotional place where the kind of silliness of the last few minutes has been forgotten because now you're back to the emotional reality of, of those two people. So. To me, I think you know, some audiences would watch that and go, well, I, I find that shift of tonality a bit jarring, but to me, that's just my life experience. 
And, and lastly, in talking about your performance in the in the series, I love the arc that Greg got to go on this season and that we did get to see him have that moment where he walked into his boss's office and demanded to be made a partner. And then even when he was turned down and he no longer works there, that it's it's not a setback for him. You know, it's it's an opportunity for other things. You know, he can finally ask his colleague out on a date that he couldn't date when he was working at the company. Um, and yet at the same time, it didn't feel like a complete 180 from who he is as a character uh, because of the way you'd been gradually building that throughout the season and so episode by episode or scene by scene how did you take a lot of the external circumstances and all the situations that were happening to Greg and find those little ways to interlace just little bits little bits of self-confidence that he was building and growing throughout the season so that he could carry himself to that point of walking in and making a demand in his workplace like that by the end well like you said I mean you've hit the nail on the head and it's the same which we try to do with each of the characters that again through this experience they are discovering things about themselves. They're being instructed and informed by the other characters who are able to talk honestly with them and give them, you know, uh, insights into themselves, which they previously, you know, wouldn't necessarily have arrived at themselves. And uh, like you say, that the more you're kind of confronted by tough things in life and the more you overcome them, uh, the more you're kind of fueled by the next time another problem, you know, arrives. And so again, this idea that going through this very, sort of scary tumultuous experience you know you can shift a person from being sort of self-conscious and sort of cowardly and awkward and and, and let them find a bit more swagger and a bit more self-confidence sort of through that journey and that seems a very satisfying way to to proceed you know and so um even as we've talked now about season three and it's fun to think about that again and sort of again how, what's the next step what's the next evolution in these characters so that they don't feel like they're treading water but that they're sort of they're continuing to grow, you know, and there's that phrase, you know, my girlfriend uses it a lot about, you know, a lot of people in therapy, you know, it's about doing the work on yourself, right? That you sort of, you have to do the work, you have to improve as a person, no one's gonna do it for you. You sort of have to be, you have to be um, self-motivated to sort of self-improve. But I like the idea that in this world, you know, the characters are sort of, they're, they're almost being, they're almost being improved without even realizing it. They're going through something which is, which is they're doing the work, um, almost unwittingly, you know, and and um, and there's something quite fun about that, and I think hopefully sort of pleasing for the audience that they can they can root for these characters and, and cheer them on when they have their moments of victory. Well, I, I can't wait to see what what season three you've come up with for that, given everything that you've managed to build into the beautiful complexity of these characters throughout the first two seasons. So thank you so much for talking about it. Really appreciate your time today, Stephen. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you.